they had a lot of money, and uh, they also uh, didn't have a lot of morals. And so, them as a, a as a city, and when the, these people, even though there were some Jews within the church or former Jews, uh, it was majority Greeks or Gentiles that made up the church there, and so uh, all of them uh, would have would have a lifestyle before coming into the church that was promiscuous and uh, especially uh, with the primary form of worship of the gods was uh, the, the goddess Venus and all the temple prostitutes that were involved with that. That was just the culture of Corinth. And so uh, with that backdrop, we are going to finally start to dive into this, really dive into this letter here, to, uh, here tonight. And so if you want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as I mentioned last week, our goal is not simply for me to be the, uh, um, the one who's holding all the knowledge, but hopefully we can uh, also all together dive into this. And I would encourage you this week to do your own study. Uh, I'm going to be covering two chapters here tonight. Hopefully we'll get through these two chapters. And uh, I'd encourage you to just even go back through and uh, to to comb through these scriptures a little bit more, to study them. And if you even want to go ahead, uh, feel free. That's all right. You can study ahead. Uh, but we're going to be in this book of 1 Corinthians for several weeks here on Wednesday nights. And I think that it's beneficial uh, in one sense to uh, to have a certain topic that you, we might study on. We do that many or a lot of times when... Uh, when I'm putting together a study, it is on a particular topic, and those topical studies are beneficial, uh, but it's also beneficial uh, to come in and, in a more expository manner, dive into a, a book and just let the Word talk to us. Because as much as this was a letter that was to that church and that this particular church in that particular uh, time of um, time, it's also to us as the church, it was... It was meant by Paul, or it was known that even though he was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, that it was going to go to other churches as well at that time. So uh, this was for the benefit of other churches as well that weren't dealing necessarily with these direct problems. And uh, it's for us tonight, and uh, we can we can glean a, a lot from this letter. And so uh, let's go. Right into uh, verse number four, verse the first three verses that we're skipping over. It's it's the greeting, and uh, we covered that last week. The greeting that Paul has as he opens up the letter. This was the typical format for a a Greek letter or a, a letter during that day that uh, you would open it up with a greeting. And so it's not just that this is Paul's typical format, though that's what you do see uh, in most of his letters. He opens it up with a greeting. And then uh, he goes into this next section, which is the other typical way that a letter would have been written with a greeting and then thanksgiving. And so uh, we'll have this here. Verse number four says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful and by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this really at this point stops the niceties that Paul has for the Corinthians uh, for the most part. Uh, here he opens it up with his, his pleasant greeting and then these thanksgiving that he offers and uh, outside of the book of Galatians and uh, maybe even Second Corinthians, uh, every letter that he writes has a thanksgiving, has, a, has this section of the greeting and then the thanksgiving. Galatians, he gets right to the point. He doesn't have anything to be thankful for for the Galatians at that point when he's writing to them. So he doesn't have that. Uh, but here, even though he is going to correct them, he still makes sure that he lets them know that I thank my God always concerning you. That you are always on my mind as far as when I, uh, when I look back on that time that I spent with you, that year and a half to two years that I spent there in your city and, and I got to know you, I thank God concerning you. And it says, it's for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. So the grace of God, he's saying, I thank God, not just for you, but I thank God for the grace of God concerning you. I'm thankful for the gift of salvation is what he was talking about. That's by grace that we are saved. Now here tonight, we are saved by Grace, And what he's referring to here is when he says that I thank God always on your on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ is I'm thankful that it was God who came and he was with me when I was there with you and that and that we had some fruits from my labor, that there was the gift of salvation uh, was uh, was bestowed upon you. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And then he uh, has this section here in verse 5. It says that in everything you are enriched by him. I love that. In everything you are enriched by him. You, this is, this is a reminder to, to these people. Uh, because in, within that uh, Thanksgiving section also, he, he says, you come behind and no gifts. You, you guys are blessed abundantly with the gifts of the Spirit. That they are in full operation, that you are, and, and you're aware of that. The church was very aware of their rich spiritual, uh, whatever the rich spiritual nature that they had that was working within their church. It, this is really the, the letter that we see the most uh, addressing spiritual gifts. We're not going to get there tonight, but... Uh, he addresses spiritual gifts to the Corinthians and the operation of these spiritual gifts. And that's it's because they were operating freely in them. They, they had the gifts of the Spirit at work in them. But uh, this is a reminder to them that their, their spiritual riches came from Christ. He says, in everything you are enriched by Him. Don't forget that your riches, they come from Him. That the spiritual riches that you have, it's, it's not something of yourselves. Don't get puffed up about this. And he's not rebuking them. But you can, you can pull out some, uh, some theological or reasoning here. You can pull out some, some, uh, 
understanding here beyond just being thankful that he's saying, hey, you're enriched by him. So, uh, and, and it's in all things that you're enriched by him. And then he does go into this, uh, these two areas of uh, coming uh, enriched by him in, in your utterance, or the speaking gifts that you have, and also in your knowledge. These are two things that uh, really cover many of the, or several of the spiritual gifts that, uh, that he will address later in the book. The utterance gifts, the speaking gifts, as well as knowledge are two areas that he says, you're enriched in all things, especially in these two areas. And we'll see that knowledge is something, and wisdom, uh, th- these, this is something that he's going to dive into here straight away. Um, I am with my small, I guess I could just look up on the screen, but uh, could we get the lights like turned all, turn all the way up? I had them down for before service. I'm having a hard time reading my Bible here. I am. I guess I'm getting old. There we go. Now I can see the words of my little tiny uh, font here. All right. So here we have the Thanksgiving, and um, then it's right after that that he starts to go into a, a uh, to address some things that are going on within the church. And this is the pattern that we'll see throughout the book of Corinthians, is, is he will, first of all, come in, and uh, he will just address in a very general manner some things that he has heard that are going on within the church. He even says here how it is that he comes to hear of this. It's from the uh, the house of Chloe that it's got, the word has kind of gotten to him. And he starts to address some of these issues. And then, uh, as I said, this is kind of the pattern of the book. He addresses generally these issues, kind of sets a, sets some framework for this. And then he goes into addressing what appears to be some specific questions at times that they had for him. And he will address these specific questions. And then a lot of times he'll even come back and just generally wrap it up, uh, wrap up this thing again uh, with the framework of the gospel, having the lens of the gospel. And remember, remember that is going to be the general theme uh, throughout this book is that don't forget that as you are, uh, as you are, uh, living this life as a disciple of Christ, that everything needs to go through the lens of the gospel. You can't segment your life. Your life cannot be segmented into, into this, is, this is what I do when I'm at church. This is what I do when I'm at work. This is what I do when I'm with my friends. No, your life cannot be segmented into different areas. Everything in your life needs to be done through the, go- through the lens of the gospel. And that's really the overarching theme of everything that he'll address. When he dives in here, uh, let's go to verse number 10. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he's addressing some divisions that are among them. He's heard about these different factions within the church. He says, It's been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, 
and I of Christ. Okay, let's, uh, well, I'll finish out this section and we'll go back. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, and lest any of you would say that I had baptized in my own name. I baptized also the household of Stephanus besides. I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So there are there has been a report back to him from the house of Chloe that there within this church has arisen these different factions, these different uh, these groups of people who they like this leader or they like that leader. They like this person. They they say, hey, I really like uh, how, how this person. Uh, you know, how, how he preaches or how he teaches us. You had uh, him putting his name out there first. And this is, I, I, first of all, I should say, I should clear up that there is nothing in this, in Paul's rebuke, that would suggest that these leaders are the ones causing the division. There's nothing, uh, not just here, but even later on in the book, he comes back to address this. That it's the leaders themselves that are trying to, to divide the church. We don't see any of that. Uh, but within the church itself, you have different groups of them that are, uh, that are go- coming into different factions and divisions and they're, they're fighting amongst them, themselves. Says there's contention among you that, that's, you're saying over here, hey, I, I like Paul. And the first one he addresses is those people who say, I'm of Paul. Now when he says that, he's saying this in a rebuke. He puts him, he puts his followers out there up, you know, up first. Hey, some of you are saying I'm of Paul. Some of you are saying I am of Apollos. Now, to understand Apollos, Apollos was a Jew that came from Alexandria. He was this eloquent speaker, this great orator, and uh, he was this individual who spent some time there in the church after it was established. We don't see him mentioned as, as being there when the, when the church was established, although he may have been, but he, was, he, had, he had spent some time there. And so this Apollos, he was this Jew that, that came. And, uh, and uh, in fact, let's, let's just go there in Acts chapter 18. I skipped over 1 Corinthians 2. We'll go back to that. So Acts chapter 18 we have Apollos, and uh, we, we go here because this is our introduction to this particular man. He says that he was a certain Jew named Apollos who was born at Alexandria. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus. Okay, now I left the map from last week. I left that on our notes here just so you can uh, take a look at where Alexandria is at. And I know this is this little teeny tiny map. Um, there, or you can focus your attention if we could get that up on the screen, that, that map. There we go. So we have uh, Corinth. It's kind of right there in the middle. It's Achaia. Uh, right above Achaia, Corinth was the capital city of that region. Uh, all the way down at the bottom, you see Alexandria. 
uh, right above where that fly is at on the screen. Um, that's, that's the city that, uh, if you understand, uh, have an understanding of some of the history of that time, you had uh, Alexander the Great, who he had come in and, uh, of course, had, uh, he being a, a Greek, started up close to Corinth, Achaia, and moved his way around Galatia and down the coast. He had come through and he had conquered uh, Judea, conquered uh, Jerusalem, but uh, in a way, really, that was, um, uh, he, he actually made friends of the Jews. He, uh, he treated them very kindly compared to what some before, uh, when they had conquered them, uh, that he uh, made friends with them and and he made his way down to Alexandria, and when he, uh, which is in Egypt, this is when he conquered it, or came into Egypt. And Alexandria then named after Alexander the Great. But there was a large contingent of Jews who came down to that city, and this was the city that uh, has the great big library, that uh, huge library, all these texts, and so it was a very uh, studious city. Something that uh, people who were there, uh, they were very well learned. And so when you have this Apollos who came, it says was this Jew that was from Alexander. He was this very studied uh, individual. And, you know, and it says that also that he was um, a great orator or he was uh, excellent in his speech, that the way that he would talk, it was in this way that he could just preach the walls off the floor. And uh, I know it's their services probably didn't Preach the, that did not make sense at all. Preach the walls off the floor. Um, blow the walls off the floor. I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, he could preach, uh, just preach the house down. And uh, he, however it was, of, of their way of, of preaching, their way of explaining the gospel, he was able to do it in, in a way that could capture the attention of the people. And if you remember last week, I mentioned how where Paul was coming from when he came to Corinth, he came from Athens, and it was in Athens that he tried that same delivery. He went up to Mars Hill, and he preached this beautiful message that was, uh, that was really appealing to the people, or at least this was the hope that it could really appeal to the people of Athens in, in a way that could capture their imagination of, of like, uh, see, seeing the, the wonder of God through this, this beautifully constructed message. And it ends up following that, that really he did not have much, many converts from that, this preaching. And so, uh, he goes back and, uh, when he comes into Corinth, he scraps that method and he just comes in and just preaches a very plain, simple message like he had been doing in every other city. And we, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he uh, explains how it was that he came to them. If you can go put that scripture up here, 1 Corinthians 2. It says, I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. This is how Paul came. It's very different 
from the ministry of Apollos, or at least what we can uh, understand of the ministry of Apollos. Uh, I don't. I think I only just read the first verse, eight, Acts eighteen. Uh, could we go to put that verse back up there? Acts eighteen twenty four. We'll read the rest of this here. A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man, he was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the Spirit. He spake and he taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla heard, they took him unto them, and they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla are the two individuals that Paul meets up with in Corinth, and uh, they're they the ones who help establish that church along with Paul. Verse 27, when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them uh, much which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the, by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So we see his conversion came, uh, came at the discipleship of Priscilla and Aquila, and uh, it says that through him, and through his excellency of speech, through the way that he, he could come and expound the gospel, that he had a lot of success. And so, this is the one that he it comes into Corinth eventually, and you have a group of people who they really cling to Apollos. They like the way that he can preach. They like the way that he presents the gospel. They, they really like that. And then you have this next one that was mentioned. It says, some of you say, I'm of Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter. And uh, so, there's some of you who are saying, well, I'm... I like Peter a lot. Now, we don't know exactly why Peter is mentioned here. There is no record of Peter being in Corinth, although it very well could have been. He went to Corinth. There is, uh, there is mention within, uh, within one of Paul's letters of Peter traveling with his wife throughout that region. So it's very possible that, uh, that Peter had spent some time there. Uh, if not, then, you know, at least some of them had been influenced by his ministry in, in one way or another. He was based out of Jerusalem. Uh, so this is the one, of course, the disciple of Jesus. Uh, and, and he had some kind of influence, at least so that there was a faction of people who they said, I really like Peter. I'm going to follow the way that he teaches. I'm going to follow him. And then there's some of them that say, well, I just follow Christ. I'm of Christ. And, you know, they felt that they didn't need a leader. Christ was the only leader that they needed. Now, why do we dive into all this here tonight? What can, what can we take from it? Well, the reality is we deal with some of that ourselves in our modern-day church. That depending on the presentation of the gospel, you might say, well, I, yeah, I can really get behind this preacher. Whereas somebody else presents the gospel, somebody else teaches the, teaches the word or, or presents the gospel in a different way. And the reality is the word of God is what's powerful. The message is what's powerful. It doesn't, it shouldn't matter who it is that's, that's presenting it to us. And we don't, we don't tune somebody out just because it's, it's in a, it's coming across in a way that we don't prefer. We, we ought to tune into the Word of God no matter who it is that's, that's bringing the gospel to us. 
We ought to, we ought to be able to get past the personalities. Not say, I really like this person. I don't like this person. And so, you know, I'm not going to show up to church when this person's teaching or I'm not going to be there when this person's here. Or, or we, let's bring it outside of just the, the teaching. I'm not going to, you know, when this person's leading worship, I'm going to really get behind them. Or when this person is doing that, I'm going to show up, but not when this person is. And, and I don't think we have a big problem of this, but there's certainly churches that do. And there's times where we have, I think, had some of those issues where we could We can kind of tap out when there's a certain person that you get behind and others that you don't. And this is what Paul is addressing here is is saying, hey, let's get rid of this sectarianism within the church, all these divisions within the church. It's the reality is this is where he begins to dive into uh, himself. He's saying, "Okay, for myself, I'm glad that I didn't come in and, and baptize all of you because then you might only be followers of me. And we need to understand, first of all, that Paul is not minimizing the need for baptism. That's not what he's doing here. He is simply saying, I'm glad that I wasn't the one who did all of this. I'm glad that it was a team effort. I'm glad that when we established a church, we had a bunch of people who came in and because if it was just me, we might have, we might even have more issues where now that I'm away, you guys fall away because you thought it was me doing all of this or you think I'm the, you think I'm Messiah. I'm nothing. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm nothing. I am, I am just the, the vessel that God is using to, to bring the gospel to you right now. And so the reality is that we are baptized into Christ. You're not baptized unto Paul. You're not baptized into anybody else. You are baptized into Christ. And you can see uh, the reality of that elsewhere, Paul's letters, Romans 6, 3, Galatians 3, 27, where he talks about being baptized into Christ. And so he, he opens this up by addressing these different divisions within the church. And then he goes into uh, talking about the wisdom of God. And God's wisdom is a very simple message a very uh it's a simple gospel and that's going to trip a whole lot of people up the fact that god doesn't make this too complicated we a lot of times try to overcomplicate what god really wants to do and how god came to save us and so let's see where did we leave off verse 18 He says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Let's stop there for just a minute. The message, this message of the cross is a very powerful message that uh, he is saying is foolishness to the world. 
The wisdom of the world. It says the preaching, he opens that up by saying the preaching of the cross is to them which perish foolishness. The preaching of the cross for the, for the lost, people who uh, they are, they're going to perish. In other words, that, that they have not been born again. This message of the cross is foolishness to them. But when you receive it, when you have the revelation of, of what the cross is, it is powerful. You understand the power of the message of the cross. He then quotes Isaiah 29, 14. Uh, that's where he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is talking about the, 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 the wise ones that, that they are going to, to and they're not going to comprehend the wisdom of God. Those who are wise in this world will not comprehend the wisdom of God. And I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the ones who they think that they have everything figured out. See, the foolishness of the message, when he says in verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Hmm. That in, or that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The foolishness of preaching or the foolishness of the message is a crucified Messiah. Today, when we think of Messiah, that's what we think of. We think of the cross. Messiah equals Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins. For them, that made no sense at all. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs come and they liberate your people. See, Messiah was not simply a, a term that was reserved for Jesus. Messiah was a king. It was a conqueror. It was, uh, it was the one who was going to come in and, and to set you free. That's what a Messiah was. Now, Jesus was Messiah, but Messiahs don't come in and have themselves beaten and bruised, marched up to, to a cross and hang there. That's not what a Messiah does. And so all of this, when he's talking about the foolishness of God's plan, they just can't wrap their minds around the fact that they've been saved by somebody who died on a cross. What do you mean salvation comes? What do you mean that my freedom comes through a dead person up on a cross. Now, of course, he doesn't stop at the cross. They're not still up on the cross. It's a risen Messiah. It is somebody who conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm sure his message didn't stop at the cross, but, but the cross, the fact that he died on the cross, that death, they can't comprehend this. And this is where he's saying, this is the foolishness of preaching, and this is the foolishness of this message, is that, uh, and, and that's what we're saved by. We're saved by a crucified Messiah. Now, uh, this, this next verse, verse 20, uh, where are we at? Verse 22. It says, the Jews, they require a sign. The Greeks, they seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, that's foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Huh. 
Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Hmm. That was verse 25. We had this here. The Jews, they tend to request signs to validate their faith. That is, that is their... Um, Kind of the go-to for, for Jews, and I, we're not going to open up to all these scriptures here, but it's different examples during Christ's ministry of, of uh, the Pharisees or different people coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. They're always seeking after a sign. We want to know, are, are, are you valid? Show us the sign. And this isn't necessarily Paul uh, saying that signs, uh, signs will not come because signs will follow them that believe there are signs that validate your faith. But the sign uh, for them of a, uh, of a suffering Savior, of a suffering Messiah, and of a nation that was still in captivity, for many Jews, that was the one sign that they were seeking, was for them to be liberated, for them to have a Savior who could come in like what Maccabees looked like he was going to be, or... Um, some, some of the others before him who looked like, you know, they had all their hopes and, and these individuals is coming in and setting them free. Uh, th- those could be the ones. But, but when Jesus comes and he, his mind is on a larger scale, the kingdom of God, that didn't make sense to them. That was not the sign that they were looking for. So for them, they, they didn't get the sign of the cross that didn't register with them. For the Greeks, he says, you guys are seeking after wisdom. Greeks, Gentiles, he uh, uses these two things interchangeably. But we have to have an understanding of, the, of Greek wisdom. This was something that was very important to them. Was uh, Within the Greek culture was this, uh, was this uh, seeking of wisdom, of worldly wisdom. They had their philosophers. They had all of this. And wisdom to them was not just the content of what was being told, but it was also the rhetoric or the way that things were being presented this was all wrapped up into Greek wisdom. And so this, you can, you can start to see why there were some factions within the church of like, hey, I really like Apollos. He preaches in a way that he can explain all of this and this, you know, all these, these different ways. Maybe there's, uh, you know, I, I really like the way that he's doing this. And this isn't to paint Apollos in a bad, bad manner. Uh, he, he wasn't doing anything wrong. Uh, but, but there were some who that, probably appealed to them a a little more than how Paul presented the gospel. Paul came in, not with enticing words, not with the rhetoric of Greek wisdom, of of the flowery presentation. He just came in with a simple gospel and said, take it or leave it. This is what Jesus did for you. And when he did that, we'll see, uh, we're not quite there yet, but we'll see that there were signs that followed that. So there God showed up, and, and there were some amazing things that took place when he did it in a very plain manner. But there were some there that were like, that's not very impressive. <laughs> You're saying that we're simply saved by a man who came and died on a cross. I want something that's more complicated. I want something that's deeper than that. Give me a deeper revelation. You got to be careful when you're seeking for something that's a deeper revelation sometimes. When you seek something that's the deep things of God. You got to be careful when you have 
that person on YouTube that you've been watching who they receive their freshest revelation from God about how this and that God is going to reveal things to them. And God, the one revelation that we need is of Jesus Christ. And when you get that revelation, the next revelation that you need is that everybody else needs the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need it for yourself, and then you need everybody else to have an understanding that Jesus came to save them from their sins. That is the greatest wisdom that we could ever have, is the wisdom of the cross. And that's what Paul is going to drill into. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. <laughs> let's just, let's stop there. Uh, when he's talking about the calling here, he's, this is referring back to when he talked about the called in verse 24, which when he said the called there, he was talking about everybody who has accepted Christ, everybody who has experienced the new birth, your salvation. So the calling here is those who are saved. He's not just saying, Those who are walking in the calling of ministry or, you know, you have some special gifting of calling on your life. Um, But he's saying here that those of you who are saved, brethren, so he's talking to the church, all of you, the ones who I'm writing this letter to, brethren, don't forget that among you, there's not very many who are wise. (laughs) Yeah, after your own flesh, there's, there's not very many of you who are mighty. There's not very many of you who are noble. That's not who God came after. And if you have an understanding of Corinth, even though this was a wealthy city at this time, uh, it was last week I talked about how this city had been wiped out by, uh, by the Greeks and, uh, and or wiped out by, by the Romans. And then it was, it was rebuilt about a hundred years later. It was, um, it was, uh, close to 100 years in at this point, but when it was repopulated, it was repopulated with a lot of former slaves and uh, former people who were, uh, had all kinds of prisoners and, and different uh, people that were kind of the outcasts of society. That was who it was first populated with. It wasn't with a bunch of the noble people, and even though uh, this has become the capital city of, of that region, this isn't, uh, this isn't the, uh, the elite class that is there in Corinth. And uh, especially uh, there within the church, while there were some who were who were more wealthy, and uh, a lot of the church uh, was likely not the the upper class. A lot of the church here was not. And so he's he's looking right at these, right at them. He's saying, "Hey, you guys are nobodies. Don't forget that." But the good thing is, that's exactly how God prefers it. If you look, if you look back in all of the history of humankind, God prefers the nobodies. God seems to keep on going to the ones who they are a nobody. And I don't know what I was going to point for point two, but something they. You guys were nobodies and, uh, that's exactly how God preferred it that, uh, that you guys were, uh, were exactly the ones that, that God was coming for, but don't for, don't get lost in this idea that you are somebody now. 
And that's exactly what, what they as, as Greeks were, were seeking after, after is all of this knowledge. They're like, man, what we have, what we have been, been presented with, that's not enough. I need more knowledge. I need to become, I need to just keep, keep on getting the, the wisdom of this world. And here he says that Jesus became your wisdom. It says no flesh should, uh, or no, where do we leave off? Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God, he chose the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, that's what God chose. Yeah. And which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Both of him, or but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. In other words, when you're looking in the mirror and you see yourself and you get all puffed up because you've made something of yourself and you're trying to get all this wisdom, he says, don't forget that all of that came from God. So if you're going to glory in anything, you better have an understanding that it is, we're glorying in Him. If I'm anybody, it's because He made me somebody. And so when we're seeking after things, um, what, what, what He's addressing is the fact that, that they're seeking after things that are beyond the simple fact that Jesus Christ came to rescue them from their sins. They're, they're, they're trying to graduate to the next thing. They're trying to get past that. Okay, now now we understand that. Now let's go and try to find something even better than what Christ is. And he's like, there is nothing better. Nothing better exists than the fact that God's wisdom was that he would come and he would die for your sins. That is the greatest thing that you could ever understand. All right, verse or chapter 2. We've got a couple minutes here. I think we can uh, get through. At least part of this. Verse 1. I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear, much trembling. My speech, my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but it was in the demonstration of the Spirit and a power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We already kind of addressed all of that there. Uh, you could go to 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 12, and he uh, looks back um, looks back on his time there with them and how God had confirmed things through uh, mighty works. There were different things. We don't uh, necessarily get a list or a um, the story of everything that happened, but it says here that truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, and signs, wonders, mighty deeds, that when Paul was with them, that uh, there were mighty things that were happening. Um, as I said, we don't get the full list or the uh, story of everything that happened. But, uh, but evidently, even though Paul was not coming with all these enticing words, God was with him. And that demonstration of the Spirit was there. And that the greatest demonstration of the Spirit and the greatest thing, the greatest power and you can link what he's been talking about just a couple of verses before this uh, with power 
The power is the power of salvation. That was the greatest sign is that you have these people who their lives were transformed. And through that transformation, uh, we see that, um, that how he came, it was just simply presenting Jesus Christ and him crucified, the power of the cross. This is the power of a simple gospel. That your life could be changed. Verse 6. How be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Okay. Perfect, uh, mature is, is um, maybe a, a better translation of what that word is. Uh, we speak wisdom among them that are, that are mature. Um, this, is, this is him really uh, trying to just kind of course correct just a little bit to make sure that they don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that what God did was foolish. He's not saying that this is foolishness. He says, uh, what we're speaking here is wisdom. The cross is wisdom. It's spiritual wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. And so when he says those who are mature, those who are perfect, he's not talking about the special elite group within the church. He's not saying that there's only some people who you have, they get to talk about the wisdom of God or they talk among themselves, but, but he's talking about those who are mature, those who are believers, all of the believers, he's addressing them. So there's the, the, now the lack of maturity exists when believers fail to live according to the wisdom that's granted to all of them, which is the wisdom of the cross. Now you're no longer wise. If you don't believe that Jesus is enough, then you're foolish. He says, for I determined not to know, no, no, I'm sorry. Verse, um, Let's go to verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto, your, uh, unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's interesting. He says, this mystery, actually, if we even back up to verse 7, he says, this, this thing, this wisdom was ordained before the world. God had the plan. What's the mystery he's talking about? The mystery is that there would be a crucified Messiah. Before the world was ordained, the cross was already in place. The plan of the cross was already in effect. God knew from the, before the world was ordained, that this mystery of, of salvation, this was in effect. God ordained that before the world. Now, none of the princes of this world understood it. The prince, the power of the air, the devil, he didn't understand that this was God's plan all along. Had, they, had he understood it, he never would have crucified Jesus. He never would have entered into Judas to betray Jesus so that Jesus would be crucified. He didn't understand the wisdom of God. People didn't understand the wisdom of God except for by the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the revelation of God. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand this. He says, but it was through this wisdom of God that... Uh, that because they crucified him, because Jesus was crucified, because they didn't understand that, and it's kind of this 
thing. Had they understood it, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. But they didn't understand it, and so Jesus was crucified. And so God's plan went into effect. God's wisdom, uh, God's wisdom was able to uh, prevail. Now, going on, it says, but as it is written, and he's quoting here, Isaiah 64, verse 4, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And we love that, we love to use that scripture in a very broad context. <laughs> I'm just like throwing anything in, in, into this as far as saying, uh, you can't imagine the things that God has in store for you. But what Paul is saying, as he's quoting this scripture from Isaiah, is that the thing that was prepared for you was that Jesus would die on the cross. That was the context of this prophecy. And so we can have all these big pictures, big idea of, of all the other things that God would, would do for us that we can't even imagine. But when he's saying, I has not seen, he's saying, Nobody has ever seen a crucified Messiah. Ear has not heard. Nobody's ever heard about a crucified Messiah. It's never entered into the heart of man. It, nobody's ever imagined it. The heart is like the seat of emotion. It's, nobody has ever thought of a crucified Messiah. But this is what God planned. <laughs> I has not seen. Ear has not heard. It's never entered into the heart of man. The things which God prepared for them that love him. The thing that God prepared for them that love him was that he would come and he would die on a cross for us. And that's all you need. That is all that we need. But God revealed them unto us. God has revealed them unto us. What is them? Them is this revelation, the mysteries that they didn't understand. Unto us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Okay, the spirit. Now, here we get an understanding. He starts to switch subjects just a little bit here where he uh, starts diving into the spirit and how the spirit is searching all things. And uh, and Corinthians is a very spiritual book. Um, I can say all the scripture is a spiritual book. But uh, but here, as far as the... uh, having an understanding of, of how the Spirit is, is working, how God's Spirit is, is ministering through us and, and, and as, as the church. But uh, here he's, he begins talking about the Spirit of God. And now the Spirit says, What man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. And so there's this, there's this uh, concept that the Greeks had that was like understands like. Now, I'm wrapping it up with this. That like understands like. And uh, basically, uh, like things understand like things. Uh, and, and Paul, actually, I could just read it. He dives into this to explain it. Now, we have received uh, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is, uh, which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is the like understands like. You need to compare spiritual things with spiritual. 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, what is, um, what is he saying here? Like understands like. Uh, he's saying that... Uh, a man, you, you don't understand what's going on in a dog's mind because you are not like the dog. You also cannot understand what's going on, and I'm getting, maybe I'm getting in trouble here. You, you don't understand what's going on in your wife's mind because you are not like her. You are like, understands like. <laughs> that actually is true for anybody. You don't understand really what's even going on in, uh, in another man's mind. You only understand what's going on in your mind. That like understands like. Uh, but, the, but the closer and closer you, you, you narrow that, um, uh, the more you might be able to understand things. The more like things are, the more that you understand them. Uh, so a man might understand another man a little more than he understands a woman. Um, and so like understands like. And so he's using just this, this broad concept of, of like understands like into saying when you are carnal, you don't understand the wisdom of God. So when you're spiritually minded, you can grasp it. It's only through God's Spirit that you can understand God. You're never going to reason your way into God's wisdom through your human brain. And there's a whole lot of people that try to do that. And there's a whole lot of people that that's a big stumbling block for them. That they try to reason their way in when really what God is searching for is faith. Now, in every man, in every person, in every human, is spirit. And so, there is no stumbling block or there is no thing that God just elects certain people that they can understand God and understand the Spirit. All of our spirit is of God. Our spirit is born of God. Now, it needs to be reborn. It needs to come through a new birth. But, but everybody has the capacity to understand God, but they must open themselves up and not be carnally minded and try to reason their way into understanding God, but instead allow their spirit to be submitted to God. And allow their minds to get out of the way and not be this blockade between them and accepting God through faith. So the natural man, as he's saying here, the carnal man, is someone who has not experienced the work of God's spirit in their life. They cannot, they cannot comprehend God's wisdom. You cannot comprehend the fact that God came to save you from your sins. And again, a big stumbling block is when we can't comprehend the fact that Christ came, died on a cross, forgave us our sins. And there are so many people that, who cannot forgive themselves, even though God forgave them. They crumble un, under the weight of their own guilt because they cannot comprehend the simplicity of the gospel. And we need to be really good as a church to uncomplicate 
all of this. And to help people to understand that God is not asking you to jump through a bunch of hoops. He's not asking you to do this and this and get all these areas cleaned up before he'll ever accept you. The wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of God, I'm sorry, the wisdom of God is that the cross, the cross reaches you right where you're at. And if you try to understand that with your natural man and your human comprehension, you're never going to get past the fact that you've made too many mistakes to ever really be made into anything. Or maybe you think that you're too good for this. You're on the opposite end of it. And you're too good. There's, uh, and, and you overthink things. You're, you you cannot, can't just come to the... Uh, you look at this as foolishness. See, God's wisdom is foolishness to the natural man. And if I can close with this, we, we, we have to be careful. We have to be careful when God's ways seem foolish to you. If, if you are, you can, you, can, you can be living for God for a long time, and, and if, you, if you're not careful, you can become so, so carnally minded that God's ways begin to seem foolish to you, and you start to stray. And that's what he's trying to course correct here. When he's talking to them about the natural man, and, and he's, he's, we'll get to it next week, but in chapter 3, he turns this and he says, hey, let me show you how you are the natural man. You are the one that's carnally minded. He actually gets back to the division, the whole thing with the divisions and, and how some of you are Apollos, some of you are of uh, Paul, and some of you are of Cephas. He, get, he gets to, goes back to all of that and he says, that is the fruit of a natural man. That is the fruit of somebody who's carnally minded. That proves that you are trying to do things your own way instead of doing things uh, through the wisdom of God. And so we need to get some course correction here to where you think that God's ways are foolish, which is proof that you have allowed the, the, a carnal mind to seep in. And so... The big overall question is, what was it that changed your life? What, what was it? When he goes back to the beginning, and he's kind of set up this whole argument, is the message of a crucified Messiah, which came to you by this weak, sickly man. That's what changed your life. Not that it was the weak, sickly man, but, but I didn't come with some, you know, it wasn't by my own power. But I presented to you a simple message of a crucified Messiah. That changed your life. So now, what is it that's changing your mind to where you're seeking for something more? Why are you seeking the wisdom of this world? Let's make sure that we simply come to the cross. And the cross is what binds us. The cross is what saves us. The cross is enough for us. We don't have to have anything else. It's not to say that there's not more revelation of understanding of, of who God is. But the cross is, is the most important thing. The cross is the revelation that we understand of who we are in Christ Jesus. It's that he came and his wisdom was that we could be saved through the cross. All right, let's, we're going to close there here tonight in our study. Let's, let's stand. And I just want to seal this word here tonight in prayer and in agreement together.